Listen well to this story I tell, for some is fact and some is fiction, but all of it is true. I'm Bradley Rolfe, and I'm reading my blog. Today we get back into some more theater review, theater diatribes, theater deconstruction. Originally posted July 31st, 2019. I don't know how I feel about Paint Your Wagon. History and background, a.k.a. the boring context. For the uninitiated, the script of a musical is made up of three parts. The music, the lyrics, and the book. The music is the actual melodies, harmonies, and rhythms... The lyrics are the words that are sung within that music, and sometimes spoken words during a song, but that can blur into the final element. And the book is all the spoken dialogue, occasionally inserted within a song, but often whole scenes that help connect the songs through the course of the show. All three of these components work together to shape the story. The original production of Paint Your Wagon opened on Broadway in 1951. The music was written by Frederick Lowe, and the lyrics and book were both written by Alan J. Lerner. Lerner and Lowe have worked together as a team often, and together are responsible for other well-known musicals, Brigadoon, My Fair Lady, and Camelot, all of which they wrote with that same division of responsibilities. In 1969, the show was adapted into a film of the same name, starring Lee Marvin, Clint Eastwood, and Gene Seberg. Lerner is credited with the screenplay alongside Patty Chayefsky, of network fame, for the adaptation. Pulitzer Prize-nominated playwright John Marins wrote a new book for the musical, which premiered in 2016 in Seattle, and also showed that same year in St. Paul, Minnesota. This is the version that is playing at the Muni from July 27th to August 2nd. My only experience with this show is in its latest iteration, but I have perused the synopses, and all three have markedly different plots and characters, primarily sharing the central character and the general premise of things that might happen in a gold rush boomtown. I did not know the plot or premise before watching the show. I only inferred that it had a western flair due to the titular wagon on stage prior to curtain emblazoned with California or bust, and the fact that I was aware of Clint Eastwood's casting in the movie. So judgment here will be passed purely on the merits of the show based on the script and production I witnessed Sunday evening in Forest Park. Disclaimer. I apologize for all my broad generalizations. Any sweeping claims I make do not necessarily reflect my overall perspective on the art form of theater, but likely informed my expectations for viewing this piece. Plus, if I don't make mention of such now, I know I will hem and haw over when I say this, I mean this is or that context, but broadly, except, and that would be difficult and disinteresting to read, I imagine and I may still qualify my statements regardless, such as in the first sentence of the next paragraph. Setting tone. You're not required to tell me how to feel, but you probably should. A piece of theater does not need to telegraph its message to be good, 
but leaning on tropes and archetypes can be a useful way to quickly bring an audience into the world of the story. As we will see later in the song breakdown, the overall structure of shows from this era nearly requires this type of shorthand to get us started, because there's a heck of a lot of songs to sing, and we still need to tell a story. Ultimately, my biggest complaint is that I'm not sure how I feel about the show due to either a lack of clarity in the overall tone, or possibly a disjointed relationship between the new book and the source material. In broad strokes, the plot is this. When all the things our protagonist hoped for finally come true, it inevitably leads to their destruction. Many more things happen through the course of the show, but that's just it. Things happen. There is no greater throughline pushing or pulling our characters to some other end through escalating conflict. They only make decisions because they woke up that day and encounter the natural circumstances of life in a soon-to-be boomtown. Our main protagonist, Ben Rumson, begins as a wanderer and is only brought to town when he pities a wayward soul and helps him find his way there. Once in town, Ben hangs out because Armando promised him money. There is no dramatic tension, no motivation blocked by a conflict that needs to be overcome. Eventually, he falls in love with the only woman in town before he has a chance to... What keeps him there? Why doesn't Ben go back to trapping pelts? It's not until the wife auction do we see any dramatic stakes beyond digging for gold is hard and uncertain. There is a bit of social tension between the equalizing nature of the wilderness versus the privileged class trying to assert oligarchical structures out west, but that is never highlighted as a true dramatic conflict, so it only serves as matter-of-fact world-building texture. Throughout the exposition, Ben is moved only by the inevitable virtue of being the good guy, rather than being motivated by his wants. It is not until he has acquired a windfall of sweet, sweet nugs do we learn of his desire to build back his former lost life. And maybe that's a strong statement about what money does to the heart, but if I'm only discovering deeper thematic insights after reflection and analysis, do they really count? The theater lives in the moment, and if the audience doesn't connect in the moment, they don't connect at all. These structural foibles lead us with no clear entry point into the story. These elements are not necessary to exist as a piece, but they are expected by virtue of the medium. If your goal, as a writer, is to frustrate the genre by doing something unexpected, then you have to do something unexpected, not just be unexpected. Unless the goal is narrative torpor as a comment on the entire medium of storytelling in general, but the Muni is not that hip. Up to this point, I've characterized the show as a bit of a downer, which isn't entirely true. But honestly, it would have had a stronger identity if it was a downer the whole way. Not a Muni identity, but still. There is an odd disconnect between the two acts. The first act feels like it's trying to be singing in the rain, and the second act is trying to be ragtime. Until the final scene when it turns around and ends on a hopeful-sounding note. 
However, the journey through destruction and despair does not end with a concrete lesson learned other than, well, that was bad and we burned it all down. Let's not do that. There is no reason to believe the characters have been inexorably changed. We have only seen an external journey, not an internal one. Take the wheels off echoes the same optimistic uncertainty of, I'm on my way. The only difference is one is about adventure out there, and the other one is about adventure right here. We are left with no hope that after Curtin, Ben and co. will see prosperity and happily ever after. His language does not telegraph a clear and definitive paradigm shift. Maybe it won't be dancing girls and roulette this time, but it will be something. And that conclusion may be truer to life. And I don't expect every show to be a fairy tale. But the show did not actively set my expectations, so in the vacuum, I assigned my own based on the era of the original production. I refuse to believe the purpose of this show is to present a cynical, plain-spoken look at the moral entropy of man and men left to their own devices, but ultimately that's how the show comes across, just not as elegantly stated. And all that has a lot to do with how the book and songs fail to work equally together in shaping the story. Why write more lyrics when we can sing the chorus again? With its initial debut in 1951, Paint Your Wagon falls squarely into what is often referred to as the golden age of musical theater. Shows of this era tend to have simple plots centering around a romantic relationship between two main characters, the A story, including a secondary plotline, the B story, often involving a romance between supporting characters. There may also be a villain and or some greater societal crisis. Few of the songs in this show actively drive the plot or set up motivations, and none of them dynamically move us from one place to the next in the story. That fact in and of itself is no flaw, and for Golden Age musicals, this is a feature, not a bug. In a typical example, all the songs are laid on an efficient foundation of archetypal characters and a nearly guaranteed happy ending. There's a familiar framework that's uncomplicated. The songs don't need to do a lot of heavy lifting in moving the plot forward because, well, there's not that heavy of a plot to move. It's tried and true and it works, and that's just the hallmark of the genre, neither good nor bad. To this point, the bulk of the songs in this show fit into one of three categories. A. Love songs. B. Emotions manifesting as nature metaphor songs. And C. We're out here doing Western things songs. Uh, proof, and here's the list. In category A, what do other folk do? How can I wait? I talk to the trees, Carino Mio. In category B, Wandering Star, Another Autumn, They Call the Wind Maria. And C, I'm on my way, No Name City, 400 people came to No Name City, Whoop TA, Gold Fever, there's a coach coming in, Rumson City, take the wheels off the wagon. The only exception is I Still See Elisa, which is an emotional response song without a poetic metaphor. It serves for the main character to reassure his daughter that he still loves slash cares for his late wife, her mother, even though he has remarried. 
Also, Wandering Star also doubles as a character establishment song. But the new book has attempted to make the show more than it was, which is ambitious and maybe even commendable. But taking what we know, it's not hard to imagine how that aim can lead to trouble. Let's face it, a reworked classic is functionally a jukebox musical. In both cases, the job is to take established popular songs and interpolate them into a book musical. Within that proposition, the options tend to be vignettes, a simple story, or mash up and rework the source songs to help tell a layered dynamic tale. If we have 16 songs plus six reprises, which we do, there's a coach coming in from some city, and none of them move the character, perspectives, or drive action of the plot, then you won't have enough time to develop a multifaceted story with stakes and characters the audience can connect to and care about. Gold fever, rums and city, Marin's version of the Gold Rush drama inserts enough plot to fill a novel. And this is exciting, as contemporary audiences are often happy to have something a little more to chew on than the standard A plot and B plot and a quadruple wedding in the sky, it is also foolhardy, not so much the task of updating and enlarging an older property, but trying to do so by only adjusting the book. Songwriters have access to cheat codes of the human emotion, and that's one of the wonderful things about musical theater. There is an efficiency in music. Singing a song is like speaking in two languages at once, and if done well, we can fit a roller coaster of emotional buy-in across an A-plot, several C-plots, and even some pointed philosophical musings or broader societal commentary within two and a half to three hours. But not every show is into the woods. Now, the songs of Paint Your Wagon were not written that way. These songs were written to fit the classic, simple, golden age show structure. By trying to fit an A story and several C stories into this setting, you have to speed through vignette moments with the characters telling and not showing motivations so we can comprehend the struggle. The songs as they stand do not do any of the narrative heavy lifting, so that responsibility lands with the book. And when you add the complexities we have in this version of the show, the book has to put its foot on the gas of the plot details to keep the show from bloating to four hours in length. The audience is not given time to relate to the characters and therefore cannot connect to the show. Back to the proposition of classic updates and jukebox musicals, let's take a stroll down Correlation Lane. This season at the Muni also brought us songs from a classic show accompanied by a contemporary updated book in Cinderella, as well as a categorical jukebox musical in Footloose. In the original production of Paint Your Wagon, the lyricist also wrote the book. In Footloose, the lyricist co-wrote the book. I don't know the critical reception of 1951's Paint Your Wagon, but its endurance and film adaptation seem to suggest success. Footloose has a strong book and overall tells the story it presents in a clear and unified manner. 
Both Cinderella and the current iteration of Paint Your Wagon have book writers far removed from the lyricists, and as far as my nominal research goes, I am unaware of any contemporary contributions to those lyrics for these updated versions. Both of these shows, regardless of how you feel about the content of the story, suffer from a lack of unity in how the book and songs come together to connect that story to the audience. Okay, so am I supposed to not like this show? Well... The story that is being attempted is not without value. And the songs are not without value. But as it stands, the elements of the show are irreconcilable. The saccharine, gilded nature of the songs clash with the gritty social drama of the book. Both are presented in earnest on separate tonal planes, leading to dramatic cognitive dissonance. Boy, so it is harder and harder to, I don't know, harder and harder. It's different reflecting on these posts that are just over one year old rather than years old. So in that sense, there's not a lot of comparing, you know, what, what are my current thoughts to my past thoughts? Sure, I, someone can change in a year. Uh, but as I'm looking back at this, my frustration, which so often with any piece of art that I am frustrated with. I want it to be more. Uh, there's so much more potential here. There are seeds of ideas and concepts that I wish were expanded. I also wish I'd given more context. Granted, I wrote this expecting the audience to be local St. Louisans who likely have seen or are about to see Paint Your Wagon at the Muni, so I didn't want to, I didn't do a full, full-on review style Here's all the things that happened. I was expecting that most of my audience would have access to and, and likely would have seen this show, seen this production. It's funny, I draw a parallel here. I don't think I was watching her stuff on YouTube already when I wrote this, uh, but this year I've begun watching a lot of video essays by Lindsay Ellis, and she mentions in one of her analyses when a movie has a cognitive disconnect between the script on paper, what it tells us about the character, and the cinematography, how the camera uses the language of film and the shorthand therein to tell us about this character or tell us about, tell us about these characters' relationships. And I think I was hitting on something similar here with Paint Your Wagon, where the songs and the story are doing two fundamentally different things and that juxtaposition doesn't bring us something, you know, more complex or more than the sum of its parts. They just bounce off each other and fall apart. I don't know, and I want, I want to be careful here. A, a decent chunk of my media intake recently has been YouTube, kind of long-form YouTube videos that are in an essay style or in an analytical style, because... That's part of where I'm trying to express my voice on paper and also, you know, in podcasts and audio form. And there is this pattern on YouTube of 
videos that are saying, hey, you know this popular pop culture thing that everyone knows and loves? It's actually bad. Um, and those type of things get a lot of clicks because like, oh, how, how was I wrong about this? Or, or how dare you say, you know, the thing I like is bad. And so people click on it because they want to watch enough of it to comment on it and say, you're a terrible person. Or to, to feel, you got the, the hipster side of things like, well, it's cool to not like what's popular. Uh, and, and therefore, I'm going to build some cachet over saying, yeah, that popular stuff. Here's why it's dumb, and I'm smarter than everybody else. And that's definitely, <laughs> it's it's definitely an, an angle that I could be susceptible to in my writing, and I do and have historically enjoyed taking a contrarian stance, whether that's a, a dramatic effort, whether that's a bit of just theater, or whether it's, I don't know, I mean, like, part of my philosophical bent is a sort of broad skepticism particularly of cultural norms and specifically the idea of tradition for tradition's sake. So I spend a lot of my mental energy on viewing and questioning and, and deconstructing common things. So naturally that lends itself to saying, hey, this popular thing is actually bad because I don't like it. But I think more and more my true motivations out of writing something like this, my motivation is coming from a desire to deepen my skills as a writer and not necessarily just to be better at writing critical things, but to be better critical of my own work and to create something that people will like and that hopefully enough people will like that there will be people out there saying, so many people like this, it must be terrible. What a world. So yeah, there's another hyper-niche theatrical reflection. Only three cities ever saw this version. And uh, we'll see if it ever sees the light of day. <laughs> if, they, if they decide to fix it, give me a call. Reading my blog is a production of me, Bradley Rolfe. I can be found on Twitter and Instagram under my real name. If you'd like to skip ahead, links to my blog and other creative projects I'm working on can be found at anotherwhitesuburbanite.com.